I was going to call you up here, but I guess now we're doing it like this. We're doing it like this. Uh, many of you were with us when Luke Helmuth joined us for a Seder a couple years ago, and he's been back since then. I love so many things about Luke. One of the, thing Luke's, one of the things Luke loves is his assistant pastor, Chris Flynn. As Patrick and Ann take Michaela back to college, it's uh, our privilege and, and pleasure to sit here and have the word exposited to us by Pastor Chris. Thank you. You may not like anything I have to say. <laughs> so. And it chose, my tablet chose that moment to decide it was done, so... Is that not always the way it works? So I've been told I need to clue in when and where. This would be a great time. We're actually going to be in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 today. Um, I am very grateful for the opportunity to be here. I don't stand behind this, so hopefully that's not going to mess up broadcast or anything, mostly because I'm short and I feel like I just can't read. So I do a lot of dancing around. I'm sorry about that, but it's just part of me. Um, as he as Rob said, I'm from Calvary Chapel Hutch, and I'm very greatly blessed to be here. Doubly so, because I am usually very busy during service, and I don't have the opportunity to sit and enjoy worship with my wife very often, so this is very nice indeed. Um, Calvary Chapel, one of the things I like is they're all different, and they're all the same. It's all family, right? And uh, you can go to a Calvary and generally have an expectation of how things are taught or what is taught and things like that. One of the things that I find that we're greatly blessed with in Calvary Chapel especially, and I know that it's true here because you all have recently gone or are going through Isaiah or are going through Jeremiah. I don't remember. One of those you've just finished and one of them you're going through. But in any case, Pastor Patrick does not neglect prophecy, and that's a it's a great blessing to not neglect prophecy, to have the entire word of God opened up to the congregation. And that's a, a huge blessing. If you're not aware of that, just take my word for it, because it's not that way at a great many churches. But the question then becomes, if it's so important, and I say that, then why study prophecy? What makes prophecy so important? Well, first of all, God thinks it's important, right? Um, he thinks that, and we know that, because uh, almost a third of the Bible is prophetic, in nature. Um, many of those prophecies have already been fulfilled. Um, many or some are yet to come and probably in the near future if we're to be honest about where we're at. Uh, it gives us confidence. This is another reason that prophecy is important. It gives us confidence to know that God is in control. One of the worst things is fear of the unknown, right? We're told so many times in scripture, my memory may fail me, but something like 365 times in scripture, do not be afraid or some variation of do not be afraid. Well, why does he have to tell us so many times? Well, probably because multiple times a day we're afraid of something. Even if it's a temporary or a brief or an unrealized fear, it's a, a nervousness or a fear. And God says, don't be afraid. Prophecy helps us to not be afraid. It gives us confidence in the future, and it takes away that greatest fear, which is that fear of the unknown. And most importantly, prophecy is how God proves himself to us. That's how he proves his existence, right? If he can tell you in exacting detail a, a prophetic vision, and then it is fulfilled in exacting detail down to the letter of what was said, then you know that he is the God of the universe, that he created everything, that he's in control of everything, and that includes past, present, and certainly future. So prophecy is a wonderful thing. Um, I enjoy prophecy because I can get bogged down in the rest of Scripture and sometimes get bored, if I'm going to be honest. You get into Leviticus, don't we get a little bored, Deuteronomy, things like that, right? But you, you open the prophetic word and you go, wow, I really want to make some sense of this. And then you look at it and you go, okay, well, this is kind of difficult to understand too, right? Sometimes it can be because it's yet in the future. We don't know what the future holds. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, um, the things of the internet, the, like Twitter and things like that, wouldn't even be a thing, right? But here we are today, and it opens up our eyes, and yet God still knew about all of it. It's not a surprise. This means that by reading and understanding prophecy, we can know about the time in which we live. And that's really what's important to us, right? Um, okay, that's great. We, we know the prophetic. We know what's coming. We know all of that. But where are we in that period? What does that mean for me? You know, 
innately, we as Christians, we want to think and we care about others, but it's really about our time. We have difficulty thinking outside of our own lifetime often. So it's, how does this affect me? What does this do for my ministry? What does this do for my life? And with, through prophecy and through the understanding and study of prophecy, we can live in confidence and less in fear. Once again, again, less of that fear of the unknown. So the question is, and it's already been answered and it's already been brought up, but I'm sure, are you expecting Christ's imminent return? We live in this time where the world is expecting something. A big change, right? I mean, we hear all the time, 12 years till the end of the world, five years till the end of the world, whatever. As Christians, we know that's all false because the Lord says it will happen at, he doesn't give us a date or a time, but we can see the signs that go along with it, right? And we can see that, at least in our minds, we are so near his return that we should be expecting his imminent return. In fairness, the church has often and always thought that it was the last generation and would see Christ return, right? Even Paul himself, when you read Paul's writings, he makes reference. He, he expects that Christ will return in his lifetime. And that was a couple thousand years ago. Didn't happen. Difference is, while that is not dissimilar from our attitude, we expect to see Christ return, and that's a good thing, by the way. The church should always expect Christ's imminent return because it keeps us always working towards uh, furthering the kingdom. But more than any other generation in the past, we have more reason to expect his imminent return. And that's for several reasons. And the most obvious, obvious of which is because it hasn't happened yet, right? So we have more reason to expect it uh, because it has yet not happened. Um, also, and equally important is Israel. Israel's on the map again, right? Israel exists again against all odds, against everything that the world would have said, but yet <laughs> against nothing that was a surprise to God, right? Ezekiel makes it very clear about the rebirth of Israel, as do other scriptures. One of the other reasons we can expect Christ's imminent return is when we open the book of Revelation and we read the letters to the seven churches found in chapters 2 and 3. Now, Revelation can be a difficult book. Um, we're teaching, I'm teaching through that on a midweek back at our home church. It, is a, it can be, in some ways, difficult. But it's less difficult and it's more ex surprising right? It's, it's not so hard to understand as it is sometimes hard to believe. Thankfully, with the churches, with the letters to the seven churches, it's much more simple. Now, unfortunately, Pastor Patrick told me I have a time limit today, so I cannot go in detail through all seven churches, which is, oh man, I would really love to do that. But we are really going to take a flyover view. If you're familiar with Pastor Skip Heitzig's 30,000 feet, right, that's really how we're going to look at the seven churches tonight. Because the seven churches do provide us with more or less a order of events, starting, uh, well, containing all of the church age, okay? And if we're truly approaching the final days, then we should expect to see the final church that is mentioned in those seven churches existing in our time. We should expect to see that as it was described by Jesus. So we're going to fly over the seven churches and consider specifically just focusing on the traits of each of these seven churches to evaluate where we believe we are in the prophetic timeline. Fair enough? All right. So we're going to dig in. I, I, Man, it is way outside my nature. I love verse by verse, line by line, but if I did that, I would spend all my time up here just reading chapters 2 and 3 to you, and we wouldn't get anywhere. So we're going to skip. It is going to be line by line, verse by verse, and line by line, but with big gaps in between. Okay? Go home, do your own homework. You should anyway. Test everything I say. Question everything that is ta taught to you. Be a Berean about it. Open scripture and read for yourself and come to that understanding, right? Um, so, Four things to consider about each church. Now, I know, I can count. I understand. I was a long time, well, I was in the service, Navy, and I was a long time law enforcement officer. It didn't mean I can't count. I got it. I say four things, and there's only three things listed, right? We'll get to the fourth one. I didn't lose my mind just there, okay? Four things to consider about each of these churches that we're going to discuss, and that is that each church is a historical church. It did exist, okay? There was an actual physical church building in this city that they're talking about 
sometimes multiple church buildings in that city, but in any case, that church did exist in a place and time. The second way to consider these churches is that they represent a period of time within the church age. And the third way that we're going to talk about right this second is they represent a type of church found regardless of the period of time within the church age. I'll explain that a little bit better as we get into it, but this is kind of the overview of what we're going to be talking about. So the first question to answer is, what is the church age? And the church age, simply put, at least the way I'm going to rephrase or refer to it, excuse me, is the period beginning with Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and ending with the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation. If you are not a pre-trib rapture believer, we can discuss, and I can tell you why you're wrong later. I, I mean that out of love, absolutely, but no, I'm, I'm joking in some ways. But the fa- it's, it's not a salvation issue. I get it. But the fact of the matter is, is my belief is in pre-trib rapture, and that's what I will support, and that's what I'll teach, okay? Um, so, beginning with Pentecost, ending with the rapture of the church, then rolls in the tribulation. Quick note, the rapture does not start the tribulation. Don't be confused, Okay? All right, Um, moving on somewhat less swiftly. So the church age can be divided up into seven different periods, and that's how we're going to look at it today, and it, it coincides with these seven churches. Each period is distinguishable and defined by certain dominant characteristics of the church during that time. That may seem confusing, but we do this all the time, okay? Consider this, a day is a single period of time. Would you agree with me on that? Okay, a day is a single period of time. Now, if you're in Israel, the day starts at a different time than it does here, right? At the sunset, that's when day starts, or the next day starts. A day can be divided into specific periods of time. Specific and yet still somewhat vague. How much light or what events are happening, etc., kind of define what that period is. Consider this. If I say morning... Something just came to everybody's mind. If I say dawn, something came to your mind. Midday, afternoon, evening, dusk, night. All of those entail something, and we all understand what it is. Except I would, I would wager that most of us would not agree on what time, if we were to try to put an hour to each of those things, we would not necessarily agree on what time it changed from morning to dawn or from dawn to midday or whatever the case is, right? Similarly, there is some overlap with the church age in these various churches, but they do define general aspects. So if you're looking at noon or afternoon, you would expect Okay, I used midday here. So if you're looking at midday, we would expect the sun to be high, as high in the sky as it's going to get, right? And uh, it's going to be warm, as warm as it's going to get, maybe. Who knows, in Kansas, that's arguable, but just go with me on that. Um, The same is true. We would expect to see certain traits occurring during the period that each of these churches represents. Okay, so when considering prophecy, especially prophecy not yet fulfilled, and, and we're into that a little bit tonight, We do not want to look at the world and make the Bible fit. We do want to look at the Bible and see how the world fits. Now, in some ways, that may seem like a very small difference, but there is a difference, right? One of those ways you're trying to make the Bible fit the world, and one of those ways you're looking at what the Bible says about what would be going on in the world and going, do we fit this mold right now, okay? So, seven periods of the church age. I, vague, okay, somewhat vague, but dates up there kind of have the span of time when each of these periods existed. The last two you'll notice are highlighted, well, not highlighted, in a different color, and that's because while some would say that the Philadelphia, the Church of Philadelphia, that that church period or that time in the church age ended somewhere around 1900, I would argue that it continues and will continue also until the rapture of the church, okay? I don't really have time to make that argument tonight, but... It's there. All right. With this in mind, we're going to look at the seven churches, their traits and characteristics, and which part of the church age that we think we're living in. Now, before we begin, anybody familiar with the root of church in the Greek? Yeah? Okay. So, in Greek, church is 
ecclesia. And ecclesia simply means called out ones. Those who are called out. Does that not sound like what we're supposed to be, church? Right? You're supposed to, Jesus, if he was referring to it, be holy. Be set apart. That's what holy means, right? Be set apart like he is. Called out ones. What are we called out of? Well, we're called out of the world. Simple enough, right? We're supposed to be temporary sojourners here, not make our, uh, this isn't, we're supposed to store up treasures or anything else. All right. So the seven letters to the churches, there's a general pattern that's going to uh, exist. We won't get into all of it today, but the pattern, if you're reading it on your own, is that Jesus identifies himself and he's going to emphasize a particular trait of his, um, or sometimes multiple traits of his, that he has described previously in the book of Revelation, okay, in chapter one. The second thing we'll see in each of these letters is a a, well, won't see it in all the letters, but the second thing in the pattern is a commendation, a good thing that Jesus has to say to each of these churches, and then followed by a condemnation, a negative thing that he has to say about each of the churches, followed by counsel, like, I advise you to do X. Finally, a challenge, and usually that challenge comes in the form of he who overcomes or let he who hears do this, that, and the other, okay? That's kind of the format each of these letters takes. Now, there's, vari- there's variations of that, and we'll hit on some of that as we go by. Okay, I know I'm speeding along. We'll get there. Okay, so the first one, Ephesus. Um, by the way, okay, so the way I, I did these slides, if I did them right, is generally speaking, the positive traits, the, the commendation that is noted are the ones in black letters. The condemnation or the negative traits that we see are the ones in red letters. If you're, take, if you're taking notes, that's really kind of how I'm going with this. So let's read, let's go ahead and read chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And that's a little more than we will normally do, but I like to set the pattern here. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your, preser- and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have, excuse me, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So you see the introduction there where Jesus says to the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. We're going to see that pattern. And I understand if I'm reading a slightly different version than you all, I think you all are in New King James. I'm in the NASB. Um, I tried to make the adjustments in my notes, but if I failed, just read along with me, you know, right? Everybody can, we'll get there. Um, So, What are their traits? What are the positive traits? Well, they work hard for the gospel, right? Jesus says, I know your toil. He says, I know your perseverance in my name. So they persevere in the name of Jesus. Uh, Think about John and uh, Peter when they were told by the Sanhedrin, you can no longer speak. You know, we're not going to find you guilty, but leave here and don't don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And their answer was, well, we can't do that. We'll let you decide, is it, you know, is it right for us to listen to God or right for us to listen to you? You decide. And they weren't going to do that, so they persevere in the name of Jesus, and they didn't tolerate false prophets. However, Jesus says, you left your first love. It's an important thing to note that they left their first love, they didn't lose it. There's a difference, right? It's, it's almost a willingness to do this instead of something that was taken away from them or that they just misplaced, they left it. What they replaced their love of Jesus with was work for Jesus. On the surface, that doesn't necessarily sound bad until you get to that point where you go, well, I replaced my love of Jesus. That's a bad thing. Sometimes we identify ourselves by what we do for Jesus instead of who we are in Jesus. And that's a danger. That's something that many of us struggle with from time to time. Okay, moving on to Smyrna. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until the end and I will give you the crown of life. 
Smyrna was the church that immediately followed that apostolic church. That first church, Ephesus, that's represented as the apostolic church or the loveless church. These, it started out with these were the apostles that went out. It was carried on by their children who went out, but they kind of lost the point at some place along the way. Smyrna, the, the church of Smyrna exists. It's that persecuted church. See, it became law that it was required to worship Caesar and to announce Caesar as Lord once a year to offer an offering and announce, declare Caesar as Lord within the city of Smyrna. They were very pagan, but they were very uh, religious in that entity. Um, The Christians there obviously would not do that. They would not give Caesar the title of Lord, and they would not offer a pinch of incense, which then made it so they could not get the stamp of approval, literally, and that they could not do business, and they couldn't do business for the year. So by by refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, by refusing to bow the knee and acknowledge someone other than Jesus as Lord, they were unable to do business at all, and this led to their poverty. Not only that, it then became punishable by imprisonment and death. It just kept one-upping because they really wanted these people, everybody to acknowledge Caesar as Lord, and that wasn't going to happen. So Smyrna faced, the church there, they faced persecution. They faced tribulation. They were impoverished for their faith, persecuted unto death. But Jesus has nothing bad to say about them. It's one of two churches he has nothing bad to say about. We, this is one of the very few churches that we in America have very little understanding of because we don't face that. But there are churches around the world that absolutely do, right? There are churches around the world that still face that same persecution. If you're in China, North Korea, sometimes the Philippines or elsewhere, um, this is a very real threat. We're outside of that. It has not touched our lives in the same way. All right. The next church is Pergamum. Go ahead and read chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Excuse me. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you have also some who, in the same way, hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. All right. Don't have time to get into who the Nicolaitans were, but. You've read about them in the past, probably. You've heard about them in the past. Not a good teaching. The Lord really doesn't like it. Pergamum, where is it? Well, they lived in, the, in Satan's stronghold or in his capital where Satan has his throne. So you immediately get this idea of the spiritual weight, the spiritual persecution. Have you ever gone into a town or even into a place where you just feel the spiritual weight on you and all you can go is, man, my spirit just wants me to tell me, get out, right? I mean, imagine living in that on a constant basis. And the Lord recognizes that that's where these folks are. And he, and he says, but even despite where you live, even despite all the pressures that must exist, you hold on to the name of Jesus. You don't deny Jesus' name, and you held on to Jesus himself. But they allowed a corrupting influence in through false teachers. That reference to Balaam and Balak, if you're familiar, that's the story where the donkey ends up talking, right? Um, this is uh, Balaam so Balak really wants to curse Israel. Balaam keeps trying to curse Israel, but the Lord won't let him. Instead, he keeps blessing Israel. So finally, he says, hey, I know how you, can get, how you can defeat Israel. You just have to corrupt them. You have to get them away from their God. And the way you do that is you go in and you intermarry. So he taught them to sin. Effectively, he brought them into sin, and that was a bad thing. I, I really like the story of the donkey. We don't have time to go into it. But in any case, that's what's going on with this church. Now, through history, this is the early, uh, early Catholic church, okay? It's nothing bad. I'm not saying anything bad about the Catholic. I'm not gonna st- we're going to talk Reformation churches here in a little bit. It's not anything I'm talking bad about those specific churches, just recognizing what church was mostly in um, power or effective during that time, okay? Notice The Lord says, I know it's a tough place to live. I know the good things, okay? So before we get all quick to condemn something, 
we need to look at all of it. The Lord is not condemning everything, right? Okay, moving on to Thyatira. Chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Jesus has a lot of positive to say about this church. And again... This is going to be a continuation. This is what I would call the late Catholic Church, uh, at least late at that period. I suppose now would be later, but just work with me, right? You get the idea. Um, we had the dates up there earlier, that period of time. Anyway, Jesus says a lot of good things. I know your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. And not only that, you're doing all of these things even more now than when you first started. In other words, when you were on fire for Jesus and you were doing all this, now you're even doing more. However, you tolerate a false prophetess, and that led many astray. Remember, a prophet is one who claims to, to proclaim the word of God. In ancient Israel, they were to be stoned if they were fallen false, right? But this prophetess, she's teaching the, much the same as the last condemnation. She's teaching the church that, or she's probably saying that the immorality is okay. Because if you look at the history of where Thyatira was, they had a, uh, one of the temples in, that was focused on debauchery and sexual sins and things like that. And she was probably telling them, hey, this is okay to, to still do this life over here and still call yourself a Christian. Right? It was giving that blessing to things that shouldn't be blessed off effectively. All right. Sardis is the next one. Chapter 3, second half of verse 1. So the first half, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars say this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Now some would argue that, that I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, that that's the positive. I don't think it is. I think this whole phrase, this whole sentence has to be taken as one. You have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. So what do we know about their traits? Well, they act, they look like a good church, right? They're, they're doing the actions of church, and yet spiritually they're dead. I told you we'd get to the Reformation churches. This is the time period that covers the Reformation churches. Remember, they came out of the Catholic church, and they, they were going to do all this great stuff, but Jesus identifies them as, hey, you say you're Christians, but you're spiritually you're dead. I'm not picking it. This is what the Lord says, right? And I'm not trying to pick on any in particular. This is what God says. Moving on to Philadelphia. Oh, notice Sardis is one that I would say has no positive. File that away. There's two that have no negative mentioned against them, and there's two that have no positive mentioned for them. Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 8 through 10. And actually, 8 through 11. And uh, this is probably one most of us are familiar with. We like this one, right? I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power. Or I think in your versions it says because you have little strength, right? And you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing and the hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Philadelphia, they have a little strength. Now that can be in reference, it's thought to be, there's a, there's a disagreement about what that means. You have little strength. Does that mean that they have little influence, as in power, as in little effect on the things around them? Or is it little strength, as in exhausted? I'm tired. I think it's the second one. I think it has more to do, but both things can be true. Oftentimes, especially in the book of Revelation, we can find that multiple things are true at the same time. I mean, that's what we're discussing with the seven churches, right? There's four different ways we can apply that to our lives or to our study of Scripture. So it could mean 
and probably in my mind does, mean that they're exhausted. They have little strength left. They're tired. Why? Well, because they've kept Jesus' word. They didn't deny Jesus' name. And we find out what time they're living in. They're being beat down. Now, Philadelphia is recognized as the missionary church. During the Church of Philadelphia, during the time period that the Church of Philadelphia covers, it was a great missionary boom. The apostles, this happened with the apostolic church too, right? The, the word went out to all the known world or to all the corners, did it in Greek. That's a different discussion. But in any case, uh, with the missionary church, with uh, Philadelphia, the Bible was translated so many times and into so many different languages, and it went out to the whole world. And this was really the time when Christianity just wildfire all over the world, okay? Um, they kept Jesus' word. They taught. I like when he says he was, they were faithful. Excuse me here. They were faithful to his word. They were faithful to the teaching. They kept Scripture faithfully. They read Scripture. They taught Scripture faithfully. And they didn't deny Jesus' name. And then there's some future traits. So we have these three traits but there's three things that are going to happen by which we can also identify the Church of Philadelphia. And that is that their enemies would bow down at their feet, their enemies would know that Jesus loved them, and that Jesus would keep them from the hour of testing that was to come upon the whole earth to test those on the earth, right? Or on the whole world to, to test those on the earth. And then Jesus has nothing negative to say about this church. Now, we're going to come back to Church of Philadelphia because we like this church, right? This is the one we all want to be, right? Right? Uh, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is we really like that line, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. That, that's, the, that's the one we, we as Christians ought to be grabbing on to, right? Okay, Laodicea. We're probably familiar with this one as well. Chapter 3, we're going to read verse 14, 15, well, 14 through 17, effectively. Um, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, or the, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then he goes on, I advise you to buy gold refined in the fire. But we've already got their traits, right? We already see they're lukewarm. They're wealthy. This is, a, this is a rich church. But the way Jesus looks at it, they only, excuse me, the way Jesus looks at it, uh, they only look like a church. They believe that they have no need for Jesus. That's what he says there. You, because you're rich, you say you have no need for anything. That's not need for anything physical. That's need for anything from him. We can buy whatever we need. We don't have to rely on Jesus. Jesus sends this letter. Notice with the church of Ephesians and every other church that he writes a letter to. To the angel of the church in whatever city, Philadelphia, Ephesus, doesn't matter. To this church, it's a little different to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Jesus doesn't even claim this church as being one of his. They don't recognize him as Lord and Savior. They're, they're looking inwards. Laodicea actually means led by the people. That's, that's how that breaks down, or ruled, ruled by the people. That's where we get that uh, laity, that word laity from, the people. Okay? Uh, this church existed to serve and worship itself, not to serve and worship Jesus. This was a church of the people. And there, again, is a distinction that we will make here shortly. So we've gone through the seven churches very briefly, very much a flyover, but we've, we've gone and we've looked at each of their traits. So the question becomes, what traits and characteristics do we see prevailing in the church at large today? The, the church, I'm not talking Calvary Chapel, Wichita, I'm not talking Calvary Chapel, Hutch, but those who would call themselves the church, what characteristics do we see? Would you agree with me if I said that uh, the church as a whole is failing to serve Jesus? Would you agree with me if I said the church as a whole is more interested in serving the people and what they desire to hear rather than what the Lord would tell them? 
closing scripture and, and opening up whatever else to give a uh, politically correct message, right? Would you agree if I said that the church today as a whole was embracing the whims and convictions of the people and failing to give the truth of scripture? Rather than convicting the people of what the truth of scripture says, the church has gone over and is ruled by the laity, right? And if that's the case, then we see and we would agree that the dominant traits within the church as a whole today are those of Laodicea. And if that's the case, this means that the end of the church age is very near, right? That's the last church mentioned. That's the end of the church age. The next thing that happens in the book of Revelation after chapter 3 is John being raptured himself to the throne room of heaven. We can take that pattern and apply it to what we'll experience. The rapture is the next event, which means what we probably all want to know and we probably want to believe is that we're part of the church of Philadelphia because that's where that I'll rescue you from that hour of testing comes from, right? And this is why I think that the Church of Laodicea and the Church of Philadelphia exist at the same time. Because the Church of Philadelphia, if it had ceased existing as an uh, impactful church, there would be no reason for Jesus to say, I'm going to save you from that hour of testing, right? It would just be, well, Laodicea is here, and guess what? They're going to get tested. I mean, instead, Jesus makes a distinction. The world, the church as a whole, is ready for the world, well, ready to accept the things of the world more than they already are. So the question then is what is the church? Just, just in general, what is the church? Somebody. I actually do want answers. Huh? I heard it body of Christ, absolutely. So the church is the body of Christ made up of people, right? The church is people. Pastor Patrick's probably said that once or twice, would be my suspicion, because he said it once or twice to me. The church is people. The church is you and I, right? It's not of people, like the church of Laodicea, but it is made up of us. It is people. So the fourth thing then to consider about each of the seven churches has to do with the people, because that's what really matters, right? It's not what does our church believe. It's not what does Pastor Patrick believe, not what does Pastor Rob believe. It's not any of that. It's what is my relationship? What do I believe, and how does it affect me? So the fourth thing of the seven characteristics that can exist within a church, it's the seven characteristics that can exist within Christians. You may sit in a church that is defined by the characteristics of the church in Philadelphia, and yet in our heart may sit and be a Laodicean. Now, I'm sure that's not anybody here. I'm just saying that I'm giving the example, right? The possibility. Because we need to make it personal, See, salvation doesn't, it, that comes from a relationship with Jesus. Salvation is not based on, there is no corporate salvation. It's not based on uh, what church you attend or what your family heritage is. And, and you know that. It's based on what's your relationship with Jesus. Jesus calls, even in these letters, he calls to the individuals. If you continue on reading to the, through the letters, in those that he has condemnations for, he says, to he who overcomes, or things like that. He's calling them and saying, hey, repent. He's calling out to his individual people. The church may not be doing what it's supposed to do. But in each of those churches, there are people who still know Jesus, even in Laodicea. Salvation comes from a relationship with Jesus. And if escaping the hour of tes testing is what we want to do, then that requires a relationship of Jesus as well. So you may sit here in Calvary Chapel, Wichita, and you may be sitting in a church that is represented by the church in Philadelphia, but what church is represented in your life? That's the question to ask, right? Uh, Ephesus, are you going to be... I know, I'm running out of time. Are you going to be... So here's the application... Are you going to be about the work of the church but lost your love for Christ and fire for Christ, lost your love for those that he loves? That's Ephesus. What, is that what's in your life? Do you have that 
I, I love being in church, but I really don't love who Christ loves. Who does Christ love? That's the question. Who does Christ love? Everybody, right? <laughs> love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Absolutely everybody, even the ones I don't like. Um, how about, are you going to, uh, like Pergamum and Thyatira, are you going to be loving Jesus but allowing things or activities to become idols, allowing you to, or allowing people to influence you or tolerate those things that he hates, that Jesus hates? How about Sardis? Are you going to go through the motions of being a Christian and yet still be spiritually dead inside? Laodicea. Are you going through the motions of church, but you've lost your everyday reliance on God, trusting in your own ability instead of his grace and mercy? These are questions, and this is that personal nature. If you want the blessings of the church in Philadelphia, then you have to develop its characteristics, right? That's a reliance on God, not on your own strength. That's faithfulness to his word, putting aside the idols and indulgences, embracing the name of Jesus, sharing that name with the, and the gospel with others. If this is already you, that's great. Keep it up. Hold on to what you have, Jesus says. Hold, on, hold fast to what you have because he's coming quickly. But if, like many of us, you struggle and you find yourself better described sometimes by one of the other churches, well, there's good news. There's still time. The day isn't over yet. You're still here. You still have the capacity to make decisions. And just as he, Jesus called to his faithful in each church, he's calling to each of us, encouraging us to live, encouraging uh, to live with him uh, and for him, encouraging us to rely on him, encouraging us to emulate the church in Philadelphia in our personal lives. Living the traits of the church in Philadelphia begins with the gospel, the good news. That's all gospel means, right? Good news. When you became a Christian, you became a minister for Jesus. I know. It terrified me, too. It's like, I, I can't take this out of here. I, I can't go out and tell people. I can't talk to other people. I can't do that. And here I am, okay? Uh, the fact is, is that you do have a ministry. You do reach people that not, no pastor is ever going to reach. You come in contact with them every day in your workplace or wherever it is. And you have a connection with people that nobody else does. Somebody in your life you have that connection with, and you may be the way that they get the gospel. Uh, I have a police background, as I mentioned, and one of my favorite, one of the most effective ways for me to imagine the gospel, the good news in this story, is thinking about a courtroom. In a courtroom, you have a judge. He sits in a really high-backed desk, right? And next to that, you usually have a witness stand, and then in front of the judge's stand, you have on one side a table, and the prosecutor sits, and on another side, of the, and another table on the opposite side is where the defendant sits. And sometimes the defendant is a fool and defends himself. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is in court. Uh, you really want an attorney to defend you, because they do a much better job. They're hired. They know how to do it, right? Well, for the gospel, the good news. This is how it works. You're in court. Now, you've been in line. You're waiting in the docket. You see three people. There's people ahead of you. There's people behind you, and they're all waiting to see the judge. And the guy ahead of you goes up, and he sits down in the defendant's seat, and the prosecutor is Satan, and God is sitting in the judgment chair. And the prosecutor just starts laying in with all these things because God has said, hey, the judge, the judge says, you're accused of X, and the penalty for this, if you're found guilty, is death. And the prosecutor is going off. He's just listing everything this person has ever done in their lives. And the guy and prosecutor finishes, and the judge says, what do you have to say for yourself? And this guy ahead of you who's defending himself stands up, and he goes through all his life, and he's trying to give all the good things he's done. And the judge says, yes, I understand you've done that. It's not enough. Guilty. And the bailiff takes him out. And you're up next, and you're terrified because you're standing and you're going, I just saw what happened. And you sit down and the judge says, you're accused of X and it's guilty of death. Guilt means death. Prosecutor starts in and you start hearing everything in your life that you've ever done wrong. Everything that you've ever said, everything that you've ever thought, everything that you've ever done wrong in your life. Starting at the youngest age until the moment you passed into eternity. And the judge looks at you and says, what do you have to say for yourself? And before you can stand up and utter a word, there's a man that's sitting next to you that didn't speak up for the last guy, but stands up and says, hey, Dad, this one's mine. 
And the judge says, you're free to go. Come this way to this door, enter into eternity, enter into the joy of your master. And after you get done, and after you realize what has just happened, you walk and you see this whole line of people behind you. And all you want to do is go, I know the way to get through this. There's a secret, right? It's Jesus. That's all you have to do is Jesus. As Christians, that's what we should want, is to get that word out. And it only goes out if we take it out of this building. So what's the good news? The good news is the judge just said, hey, good news. My son's got you. You're set. And that's the best news ever, right? You don't have to pay the punishment that you have definitely earned. Once we receive the good news, we want to share it. Maybe we need to be reminded from time to time of what we received. And each day, maybe we need to die to ourselves, as Scripture tells us, and rededicate ourselves to the Lord. If you don't think that you can share the gospel, you're wrong. Some of you may have seen this before. This is not new. I didn't create this. But the ABCs of salvation, as you find in Romans is exceptionally easy. It's made so easy I can do it, and if I can do it, everybody here can do it, okay? Because everybody here knows your ABCs. And as Christians, you certainly know your ABCs because you had them applied to your life at some point. That's as easy as accept that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and was raised from the dead and confess Jesus as Lord. If you've done that once in your life, that's great. Do it all the time. Don't be that church of Laodicea that becomes so dependent on themselves and goes, well, I did it once, I'm set. How about be that church of Philadelphia? You want the rewards that the church of Philadelphia gets, so be in that mind state where I need Jesus every day. I need to rely on him all the time. Romans finishes it out as to why this is, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, if you have a Bible, you can take this to anybody and apply it. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. That's all you have to know to give the gospel message to somebody else. And that has been our command, church. We live, if we've all agreed at the beginning of this, we live in that last age. We live during the time of the church of Laodicea. They don't have to be Laodiceans. They can be in the church of Philadelphia too. It takes a relationship. That's it. And that's our job. Now is the time. Today is the day. Endeavor to live the characteristics of the church of Philadelphia if that's the reward you want. And if you are living that, then hold fast to what you have He's coming quickly. Don't be discouraged. God appointed you to live in such a time as this. You could have been born at any point throughout history, and sometimes I make the comment that I was born in the wrong time. I, I really like the 50s and the mentality and the, the kind of the, that attitude, the neighborly thing, and I get really tired, especially since I commute every day to Wichita and back, and I get really tired of road rage and attitudes and things like that. But the fact of the matter is, is God knew when I was going to be born, and he appointed me and he appointed you for a time and a place such as this. Why? Because you can do something today for his kingdom that nobody else can. You can reach somebody that nobody else can. And if you need to be encouraged, then all you have to do is look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. When you see these things begin to happen, Straighten up and raise your head because your redemption draws near or is drawing near. Jesus is at the doorstep. I don't think we have that much more time. But until we go, until we are freed and hear that trumpet call and we meet him in the clouds, then our mission doesn't stop. There's a reason, I think, why the church of Philadelphia was short of strength, why they were exhausted. Because if we are the church of Philadelphia, I'm exhausted how about anybody else? You tired of seeing the way the world's going? You tired of seeing the rejection of God at every turn? You tired of seeing how governments and peoples just reject and actually embrace the things that are just so anti-scriptural? 
because that exhausts me, especially when I know then that I can't just go, well, that really stinks, and turn my back to it. No, I have to go out and love those same people enough to give them the gospel. It's exhausting. But God appointed you for such a time as this. So, Father, we thank you for that blessing. We ask that you would encourage us, that you would help us to straighten up our heads. Straighten up, look up, and look for your drawing near. But until then, Lord, give us the confidence to approach our neighbors. Give us the assurity to love our neighbors as you love them. Help us to spread that gospel, that good news that you've given to us so freely that we would not be selfish about it and try to hide it, that we would not be too intimidated by what they may think of us. Instead, we should be more worried about what you think of us. Father, every one of us here wants to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your master. But that means, Lord, that you have an expectation of us to continue with our ministries. We leave here and we're going to be bombarded by the things of the world once again, Lord. We're going to have those weights put on us, whether it's from work or family or whatever responsibilities. But Lord, help us to keep those in perspective. Help us to keep those things where they belong, which is not influencing our walk with you. Instead, let us influence those things for you. You've put a person in our life, Lord, who needs to hear your good news, who wants to hear it, who is desperately searching and may not even know what they're searching for. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to whom that is. Give us the courage and the words to speak to them. And Father, for each one here, who wants to be and represents that, the traits of the church in Philadelphia in their own lives, you know our strength is little. You know we're tired. So Lord, draw near. Encourage us, strengthen us, lift us up. We don't walk alone. Help us to stay focused on you, expectantly awaiting your return and being faithful until that day. In Jesus' name. Amen.